Thank you. Blessings, handbell choir. Appreciate it. Um, we are in the book of Revelation today, first chapter, beginning in verse 9. Sethu read that for us. Sethu Palmer, uh, who read the scripture this morning, is a uh, mentor ministry student from the seminary. So he'll be with us, uh, particularly this semester, uh, working in the church. So that's who that is, and you will see him around. Say hi to him, if you would. Revelation chapter 1. The one with experience is the one with the strongest voice. The one with experience is the one with the strongest voice. Now, that's not to say that the contributions of those without experience are not worthwhile. Um, Often they are. But there is a wisdom that comes from living a thing, living through a thing, that... um, that you can't get any other way. A professor of mine in uh, college said, a pastor is not worth their weight in salt until they're at least 40 years old. <laughs> and that's probably true. Because there's some things that you have to live through to gain perspective um, that will help you later on. Um, The voice of those who know themselves, the path of suffering, for example, those are the voices that speak the strongest in times of suffering, aren't they? Uh, The ones that have been there. Isn't that that who you want to pay attention to when, when we're suffering? Those who suffered themselves. Those who've lived what what we're living now, those who have been there before us. There's a verse in the third chapter of Ezekiel where Ezekiel says, I came to the exiles who lived at Tel Aviv near the Kibar River, and there where they were living, I sat among them. Ezekiel lived where they lived. He experienced what they experienced. He felt the pain that they were feeling. He sat where they sat. So then they were able to hear what he said in a more profound way. The one with experience is the one with the strongest voice. Um, I was helping out a preaching class this week, and one of the students' messages was on persevering, hanging in there, you know, with Jesus when tough times tempt us away. And he was, he was doing a good job. He was going along just fine with his sermon. And, and all he said was, was well and good. Uh, but I'll tell you, his words took on much more meaning. About halfway through, when he let us know that he himself is an immigrant from Bhutan, who's had family and friends reject him, and who's been publicly persecuted because of his trust in Jesus. Knowing what he himself has experienced made his words about persevering much more powerful. You hear them completely differently. The voice with experience is the strongest. The Apostle John knew that. And that's why he introduces himself as he does there in verse 9 as a brother and companion in suffering. 
the kingdom and in patient endurance. John wants the suffering Christians to whom he writes to understand that he gets their suffering because he sits where they sit. He sits with them. Because of his own faith in Jesus, he'd been banished to this Greek island of Patmos. So he knows what it means to suffer for Christ. The one with experience is the one with the strongest voice. His description, though, may sound strange to us. Because while we get the idea of suffering and patient endurance, I mean, those things go together, you know, all of that, it may surprise us to find that John included kingdom along with those two. You see, to many Christians today, just as to many Jewish believers in John's day, particularly those that came out of the Jewish faith, kingdom would seem completely out of place next to patient endurance and suffering because of this belief that the kingdom was a place of peace and security and plenty and all of that. They thought, well, there's no suffering if you're in the kingdom. And a lot of Christians are taught that today. There's no suffering in the kingdom. And in eternity, that's true. But, you know, until Jesus returns, his kingdom here, is never presented that way in Scripture. On the contrary, kingdom people, people who follow Christ in our day, are are like the the Thessalonians Jews uh, who charged Paul with being one who turns the world upside down. That's what they said about him. And that's what they say about kingdom people today. Followers of Christ often don't act the way the world acts. And followers of Christ often don't value what the world values. And so we live the ways of Christ in this broken world. As we live in the ways of his kingdom, those who feed on the world's values will not tolerate kingdom people. That's what happened to Jesus, right? He valued what God valued. And he rejected what the world Valued. He was too good for the broken world around him. He brought light to where it was very dark. But there were people who loved that darkness. And they could not stand his light. And so they had to snuff it out. That's why Christ followers through the ages have been martyred. That's why they've been fed to lions. Burned alive. They've been made war on. And everything else. That's why John was on Patmos. And that's why suffering and patient endurance and kingdom do go together. At least for now. That's why kingdom principles and kingdom participation very often means persecution, ridicule, character assassination, marginalization. And at times, imprisonment and torture and even death. When those sorts of things come to us because of Christ, John says, we're called to endure them patiently. Just as he was doing there on Patmos. So you see, John wasn't preaching some sermon that he found in a book. He was explaining the life that he was living 
with Christ, the one with experience, is the one with the strongest voice. But that same one also here announces to us that we are not alone in our kingdom suffering and endurance, which was a reality he also experienced. You see, the very Jesus who also suffered for the sake of God's kingdom, that very Jesus appeared to him, appeared to John. A voice came from behind him, verse 10 there says, which I might note is is something that God very typically does. So often, we're either not looking for God at all, or we're looking for him to come in this certain way, or from this certain direction. And yet, God does not always approach us from the direction we expect. And so, in order to see him, and to hear him, and to live in harmony with him, very often, we have to change our point of view. We have to adjust our expectation. We have to look up to him in a way that's maybe different from what we've known in the past. John was able to do that. And so he was able to hear the voice that we later learned belonged to Jesus. Tell him, the voice said, write this down. All that you're going to see, write it down and send it to the seven churches. So John wrote it down, 20 some chapters worth of amazing sights and sounds and warnings and promises. We would prefer a video of this. We wish that technology existed. We don't have one. So we have to settle for John's written description here. Some have asked if if this description is for us. Yes, it is. And we conclude that for several reasons. A couple of them being that since the number seven in the Bible is always the number for completion. And since the churches named there are in the order in which a traveler from Patmos would reach them on the road, we presume that this message is not just for John, not just for those individual congregations, but for all the church, the complete church, Christ's kingdom. It's for us. What was revealed to John? And what was it? What was the message? Actually, verse 19 gives you something of a map of the book of Revelation. Jesus says, write what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. You see, chapters 2 and 3 of this book talk about the condition of the church at present. Chapters 4 and 5 talk about what is real and true about God and Christ and redemption. And then the rest of the book describes what will take place in the days to come. And it's a message filled with promises and assurances to which followers of Jesus can look forward to with great relief and deep joy. There is also, though, stark and frankly severe warnings and cautions and corrections that the church must pay attention to if she's to continue to live in ways that please Jesus. It's all in this book of Revelation, but it all begins with this tremendous image of hope for John and for every Christ follower, and especially those who are suffering, who are, as John was, being beaten and battered by a broken world. John describes the one he saw. 
the image of the one he saw. And honestly, the words and the descriptions that he used seem strange to us and to our scientific, you know, industrial ways of thinking. But all those details meant something to him and to the ancient world. Uh, we're told that the one he saw was someone like a son of man. And you know that son of man was Jesus' favorite title for himself. And the church came to essentially equate it with Messiah, primarily because of a passage from the prophet Daniel, which we see all through this encounter, by the way, where the Son of Man received the kingdom and power and dominion from God himself. John says he was like a son of man. The one he saw also had a robe reaching clear to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. This is almost exactly the description of the dress of the Jewish high priest. The only one who had both access to God and the ability to open the way for others to come to God. At the same time, robes like that were also worn by royalty, princes, and kings, We see it described just like that in Jonathan and in Saul's day and others. So this one John saw was no longer a criminal on a cross denounced by the religious professionals of his day. He was now both priest and king. And he stood before John there. John says his hair was as white as wool, as white as snow. The Jews revered those who were white of head. For the wisdom... That comes with age. In this case, the whiteness is described with a double comparison. So we're to understand that he is doubly wise. God the Father is actually described just like that in the book of Daniel. John says his eyes were like blazing fire. It's a symbol of discernment, judgment. He could see all. He could see through all. Nothing escaped him. Nothing escapes His notice, so he could judge rightly. His determinations were always, always, always good and true. John says his feet were like glowing bronze. That sort of language is used for all messengers of God, just about. Describes the strength and the power that they have over their foes, over their opponents. And then his voice. John says it sounded like the rush of waters. This is the description of the voice of God himself from Ezekiel. It's not confined to one note or one pitch like our voices are. And so it's a beautiful sound, but it's nearly overwhelmingly powerful too. That's the best John could do without a video camera. And it was very vivid to his original hearers. In fact, this is one of those passages that contributes to the Christian understanding of Trinity. God being three persons, one essence. Because this is clearly both a description of God the Father and of Jesus. This is, this is John trying to describe the truth of Jesus' words back in John's gospel. I and the Father are one. He's seeing it with his eyes. And... <laughs> This is why John says in verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. That's the human response to coming face to face with God. But for those who are humble and those who are repentant, 
For those who are serious about God and about Jesus, we see here God's response to John's reaction. John says, then he placed his right hand on me and he said, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Now, later on in this vision, in the book of Revelation, Jesus gives some people, those who are unrepentant, those who are rebellious, those who reject him and his ways, the ones who choose paths of evil in our world, Jesus gives them a lot of reason to be afraid. But to John and to those like him who suffer for the sake of Christ, this Jesus, the one who sees all, the one who judges rightly, the one who overpowers all his foes, the king of kings, the highest of the high priests, he puts his hand on him. He says, don't be, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Why? Why should we not be afraid? The reason is, in addition to all Jesus is, he declares two other truths about himself here in the introduction to this chapter. First, he tells John in verse 18 there, because of all I have experienced, now I hold the keys of death and Hades. Or in our language, you might say, death and the grave. You see, the one with experience is the one with the strongest voice. Jesus wants those who belong to him, those who are members of his kingdom, yet who are now enduring suffering and trying to do it patiently. He wants them to know, I've been where you are. But now I control the outcome. Jesus holds the keys to the afterlife. There's nothing anyone on earth can do to us that will change that. And so we have no reason to fear. But that's not all. John says there in verse 12 that in his vision, he saw seven golden lampstands and Jesus was among them. What are the lampstands? John is told in verse 20 that they are the churches. Or rather, they are the church, the complete church people of God, the complete church. This means that here Jesus is reminding his church that he's among us. He is among us. We are the lampstands. We are the holders of light. He is the light that the church displays, and he is among us. He's reminding us that he is with us, that he is with his church, He is with his bride. He is with his people, no matter where we are. And no matter what's going on in the place that we are. John was on Patmos. He was banished there, patiently enduring suffering for the sake of Christ and his kingdom. So there was a lampstand sitting on Patmos. And Jesus was sitting with him. The church at Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. In all those places, there were lampstands. And the people of Christ were, to one degree or another, patiently enduring suffering for Jesus' sake. 
And Jesus, through John, wants them to know that he's with them. He was in their midst, no matter what they were going through. The church, the church complete, the true followers of Jesus in Wilmore and in Lexington and in Washington, D.C., and in New York and Atlanta and in Chicago and L.A. and Seattle, there are lampstands in all of those places and in every place where the people of Christ are patiently enduring suffering for Jesus' sake. And Jesus wants them to know that he is with them. He is in their midst. And the church in Ukraine, the church at Senkivka and Chernihiv and Hostomel and Kharkiv, Mariupol and Rivna and Kiev and at every other place in Ukraine and around the world where people of Christ, where kingdom people are patiently enduring suffering. Jesus wants them to know that he's with them, that he walks among them, that he's in their midst in the midst of battle, and he sits with them in their basements and in their subway stations. The church, Christ's kingdom in our broken world, may well be in the midst of conflict. And yet Jesus is in the midst of his church. He's in the midst of his church. Jesus, the one who holds the keys to death and the grave, is in the midst of his church. That's why his people need not be afraid. Jesus gave the vision. Jesus brought these words of assurance to John, but he also brings them to us. For all followers of Christ, wherever and whenever they are, Jesus brought these words for you today. And for me today, if we're following him, but we're weary from patiently enduring suffering. And we wonder where he is. He is near you. And he is near me. He suffers with you. He sits with you on the shore of your grief. He sits with you. And he promises it will not be this way forever. Look to him. Would you look up to him? Turn and see him. See his royalty. See his wisdom. And his judgment. And his overwhelming strength. See him in your suffering. In your patient endurance. And hear him. Hear his voice, its beauty, its power, its assurance. He's the one who's been there. He's the one who himself knows suffering. And he is with us in ours. See him here in our midst. And hear his voice today. And keep on. No matter what happens around you. No matter what happens around us. Keep on. Keep on. Jesus though battles rage all around us. And those circumstances may threaten. 
Let us this day know that we know that you are in our midst and that one day your kingdom will come in its fullness and your will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And all will be well. And yet until that day, let us know that you are near. In your name we pray. Amen.